and we're live. Thank you for coming back for yet another episode, dear listener, dear viewer. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. The podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let Mr. Richard Paolinelli. I should have asked you how to pronounce that first. I never remember. But how do you say your last name, sir? It's it's Paulinelli. You were so close. I thought you had it there for a sec. Um, oh, I was close. Paulinelli. Okay. Paulinelli. Yeah. But, I, hey, I, thanks for having me on. Yeah. So can you tell the listeners who might not know who you are a little bit about you? Well, I am a, a writer who has been writing in one form or another since about 1983, if you want to go back professionally, and even earlier, if you don't want to count my non-professional scribbling while I was in the backseat of the car to the next uh, location my family's drilling business was sending us to. But um, I've, I've almost, I can almost say I've done it all. I've, I've done freelance writing, uh, freelance photography, uh, newspaper career for a little bit over 20 years. I, I was the lead writer for a comic book series in the 1980s. And after I got done staying up till two in the morning working newspapers and got tired of that, I went back to writing fiction. And uh, since then, I've written, um, I think we're knocking on the door of about 11 novels, uh, two nonfiction books and something like 20 short stories that have, have shown up in anthologies over the years. Wow. OK, I was expecting something like you like long walks on the beach and, you know, margaritas I, at dawn. Yeah, I wish I had time for a walk on the beach, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we found them. So as you know, well, you don't know, we're recording this at the beginning of August. So, you know, it's in the middle of summer. No matter what jurisdiction you find your kids in, they're probably not in school. So we had a lot of authors have to cancel um, all at once for various daycare needs. It happens. Um, and so I reached out to Declan. I was just, you know, Declan Finn is a friend of the show. Uh, bemoaning the fact that I was struggling to get some episodes last minute. And he goes, oh, I can get you five interviews. And he um, posted something on Twitter. And I had uh, a bunch of introductions. And uh, August is now booked. So, and if I wanted to, I could book probably September from his list. But I'm trying to uh, to leave those free because, as you know, Dragon Con is upon us. And so we are going to try to do all those interviews that we do every year with the finalists where they can – you know, tell us all the sob stories about what they're going to do if they win the trophy and how they'll solve world hunger and stuff. I don't know. That's Doc's deal, but she really, really, really likes it on account of she volunteers there year after year. Well, Which, incidentally, know, if I could just jump in real quick, I was oh a sure, I was a finalist in 2017. So to all of the, especially the first time finalists this year, congratulations, guys! Enjoy every minute of it. And yeah, it kind of sucks when you aren't the winner. But just remember, you're a Dragon Award finalist, and that is amazing, and that can never be taken away. So uh, congrats to all you guys. Absolutely. And I was going to say, that's uh, as you noticed recently, dear listener, Doc's been away for a few. Uh, she has been doing her Dragon Con preparations because it's silly season for them. And uh, if you pay attention to world events, you know the border's a little crazy. And our co-host, Nick Garber, you know he has that uh, Homeland Security stuff going on with Border Patrol. And so we are working on trying to work around his crazy schedule. And just when we think we have it nailed down to get him, 
his inconsiderate bosses reschedule him. I don't know why they keep getting away with that, but apparently my phone call did nothing to help him out. So funny how that works. I don't have any reach or clout, but anyway, so uh, now that we've got all that out of the way, dear listener, we get to ask Richard the religion question. So Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Okay, I'm a heretic, so Babylon 5. Acceptable. <laughs> uh, a lot of the heretics from the, across the pond like to say Doctor Who. And I'm like, uh, no, no, I don't know yeah. them. Who? Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> but, I mean, if you put a gun to my head and said you got to pick up the three, I, I got to go with Star Trek only because I am old enough to have watched original series episodes when they first broadcast on NBC back in the 60s. So, I, I, I lean Star Trek, but I'm I'm definitely Babylon Five. Okay, I um, I see. I seem to remember that uh, the Next Generation came out in the '80s or late '80s, early '90s. Yes. So I remember yeah. those watching those live. And uh, as a young kid, all I could think of is all the cool stuff you could do with a um, the what do you call it? The, the not the replicator, the hollow deck. So oh, that okay. always struck me, but it was always so. Um, utopian almost in its outlook on humanity. And I just, I always remember thinking I've met people, they're not that nice. And so for me, um, Star Trek was a lot more realistic, you know, in the, in the way it portrayed the world. Uh, So that always did it for me, but I I do like both, not as much as doc likes Star Trek, but yeah, who does? So (laughs) anyway, and uh, Firefly's the nostalgia pick because it didn't get its time to shine. Yeah, you know, so, I, I, I never got I never got into Firefly, so I it, it came down to Star Trek or Star Wars, and you know, I as a kid growing up, I had the original series and I had the animated series. I had all the books that started coming out in the seventies um, that I read every time they came out, um, and then we had the motion picture, and so I'm I'm just a Star Trek guy. What what can I say? All right, so now the fantasy religions, we got to see see where you stack up: Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Wheel of Time. Okay, definitely Lord of the Rings. I mean, Tolkien's, Tolkien set the standard, put the bar up there, and nobody has come close in, in my estimation. Um, it's it's definitely a Lord of the Rings. Okay. Those are sort of the iconic ones that if you talk to anybody about fantasy, they've heard of at least those three, which is why we picked them. But, uh, but yeah, I, it's hard to compete with uh, Tolkien. Yes. So. We here at the Blasters and Blades love both the fantastical and the scientific, but what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Definitely sci-fi. Um, you know, like I said, I my first memory of television watching is Star Trek, and only because my dad had just finally bought his first color TV. And I know people today, the kids today are like, what's the big deal? Well, back in the 60s, you not everybody had color TVs in their in their living room. And I think a lot of the shows were, some of the shows were still shooting and airing in black and white. So he gets this, this big color TV and he's, he's getting it all set up and Star Trek is coming on. And of course, Kirk and Scotty are talking or Kirk and Bones are talking and he gets all the color set. And it was a chore getting these things dialed in. So he gets it all dialed in. Spock comes on. Spock is green, you know? So he's like, (laughs) Something's wrong, so he's he's messing with the thing again. Get Spock human color. They go back to, to Kirk and McCoy, and they are like cherry red fire engine. Um, <laughs> so, so he's he, you know, it took him a good 10 minutes of back and forth before it dawned on him. Spock is supposed to be green. 
So it's just watching my dad doing all this is one of the first TV memories I have. Uh, so Star Trek kind of stuck with me. Uh, you know, I started watching the the late night reruns on Friday night would be, you know, The Forbidden Planet, that, that iconic sci-fi movie from the 50s. You know, so it just, those those TV shows, those films hooked me. And then when I went to the library, I started pulling sci-fi books and, you know, it just kind of grew from there. So I'm definitely sci-fi first love and I'm, I'm starting to get more into fantasy as I get a little bit older. Okay. The um, Forbidden Planet I've actually seen um, too. So it's, it's some of those classics I've been revisiting just because, you know, when you've got young kids that, that are impressionable, sometimes you want things that they can learn to enjoy the, the genres you enjoy, but aren't going to make you answer uh, uncomfortable questions before they're ready. So, yes. so I've been revisiting some, although I learned the hard way with my oldest that just because it was made in the 80s doesn't mean you can automatically assume R is like uh, a modern PG because sometimes yes. you were surprised. <laughs> there, was, there was a fantasy movie about Pompeii, like a fantasy take on Pompeii, and we were watching it, and I was like, oh, this is okay. And then they're choreographing a fight scene, and the next thing you know, it was TNA everywhere. I'm like, nope, cover your eyes, and we're yep. frantically yep. scrambling to turn the TV <laughs> off. I'm like, I guess that R meant R. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's a an adventure. It's a different uh, system over the years, but yeah, it's. Um, I'm trying to remember. There's a movie that we were watching. In, it, it was in the 70s, and I I just in complete blank on it. But you know, it was, it was pretty good sci-fi. And all of a sudden, like you said, it's just TNA everywhere, and it's like, okay, let's change channel. There's there's kids in the room. Let's go somewhere else here. So yeah, yeah, you, you you have to be aware of the the difference in the ratings over the years. Yeah, and, uh, and that's not something I even considered. I just made the generic assumption that if it was on TV back then, it's safe. And that's not always true. And, uh, and that, then you got to factor in what country it first aired in because European standards and American standards aren't always the same. Yeah, yeah, there's a difference. They get all wonky about guns, uh, and, this, and we get all wonky about body parts, and so you kind of mm. got to know what your poison <laughs> is. So... So was what was your first memory of sci-fi? Was it that Star Trek with your dad, or were there games or books before that that exposed you to it? No, it, it was it was definitely that that evening, you know, watching dad just going nuts trying to get the the TV fixed, and and um, it, you know, it, it was I think it was in the last season of Star Trek, so. I never really saw the first two seasons until they, they hit syndication and they started running. In our case, I think there's a, a TV station out of the Bay Area that came down to where we were in the Valley. And they started showing it in the afternoon right before Captain Cosmic, which was a kid's thing that they would do. So that, that kind of reintroduced me to it. And I, I was able to catch up with it. And then, uh, you know, like I said, I went to the, uh, to the library and James Blish had taken all of the episodes and novelized them. And so I was able to read those and he did a really good job of filling in some stuff to, to make those episodes even better. So it, it's just, you know, Star Trek started me on sci-fi. Um, I, I got introduced to HG Wells through the, the 1950s movie which is nothing like what Wells wrote, but, you know, it, it got me started. Um, and it just kind of grew from there. 
So that's actually something we've talked about organizing for a fireside chat, which is sort of like um, almost like a con panel, but instead of it being like, you know, author around the row answer, it's more of a uh, open conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we started doing, but we want to do some and focus each uh, episode on the various fandoms. So like Star Trek and Star Wars and, you know, where possible, get some of the authors that wrote some of the books on to talk about, you know, the nerding out with the stuff they loved. Mm-hmm. But how much of a purist are you? Do you mind watching the original episodes that were black and white if they colorize them? Or do you want them to stay as they were? You know, I years ago, I would say I want to see it in color so it looks real. But I've grown to appreciate the time and effort that the cinematographers put into making the black and white look as good as it did with the lighting. And, and the, it kind of helped create the, the mood and the atmosphere. Um, the, there was the, the original Outer Limits, which ran back in the 60s, were in black and white. And there's an episode called uh, Demon with the Glass Hand. And I don't think if you colorize that, that it would, it would look as good as it does in black and white. He, it's, a, it's a really kind of a dark episode as far as it all takes place at night. Uh, the main character is being chased by these guys with very pale faces and black circles around the eyes. Uh, it, it just the whole thing with the mooding. So I'm kind of becoming more of a purist with if it was shot in black and white, leave it alone. Okay, I can dig that. I actually remember watching the first black and white show I watched was the um, Will Robinson, Danger Will Robinson, the, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank on that one. Lost, Lost in Space. Lost in Space, yes. I remember watching those, uh, and I've seen some of those. I don't know if it was done by the, the studio or if it was done by fans. I've seen some of those episodes, the original ones get colorized, and it it takes something away from it, but I'm not – you know, it, I think it would depend on the show and how the quality of the conversions. Yeah, some of the so. early colorized where they took some of the older movies and colorized them, you can tell. It just doesn't yeah. look, you know, it doesn't look natural. Uh, they're getting better at it, though. And there may be a time where they can take the old black and white, colorize it, and then keep that lighting that the, the original crew and, and cast put together. If they can do that, you know, I might change my mind. But right now, I'm, I'm kind of like, I, I want to see how it was originally shot. They've actually dang near perfected it. There are artists that are colorizing old um, original stereotype and original black and white pictures. They did that night, uh, the movie about World War One. I, I don't remember what it was called, where they took the old, the real to real videos and mm-hmm. they colorized it. And then they added sound to it um, based on watching the lips move they figured out what people were saying and, and you ah, know there you go. Uh, so the the skills they have in that regard now are impressive sometimes i think it's worth doing other times it's like and eh, you know there's something for the nostalgia factor yeah yeah i'd like so. to see what they could do with metropolis that's the old Ooh, 1920s yeah. yeah that would that would be interesting if you could do it right it, it might be pretty interesting and then you got to figure out how you could do, if you could even do voiceovers on it. I don't know. I have no idea if you could do it, but uh, that that would be a project I'd like to see done. Yeah, that would be interesting. So I, um, I, I could see that one being interesting. I like some of the old uh, Rocketeer stuff that they did uh, mm-hmm. from the original screenings. Um, that would be 
kind of fun to see. But again, I don't know. Like you'd have to do it right, otherwise you're going to ruin the nostalgia factor. So yeah, yeah, the old Flash Gordon serials that those would be good. So if you could write in any, this is off script, so I'm sorry you didn't get to prepare for this one, but okay. if you could write in any of those original properties that you loved as a kid, those sci-fi properties, which one would you pick to write for if you haven't already? Okay, this is, this is fan fiction. You're allowed in Star Trek to do it. And I went and paid a company to bind what I did. The calling? The only, okay. The calling. And uh, this is the only this is the only copy that ever will exist, and it will stay on my bookshelf. Um, and if you want, if you if you want to read it, it's online. You can go and find it. I think I have a link on it on my website. I'll double check. But um, I always wanted to do a Star Trek novel, but it, the hoops you got to jump through to get it published. It, it's a pain, and I didn't have time to do it. And then I saw that you're allowed as long as you make it free. Um, and you don't charge anything for it or in any way, shape, or form try to make money off of it, you can publish it. But there's actually a website that it's on for Star Trek fan fiction. You can go read the whole thing. So, yeah, I got that one. That's really the only one I really wanted to do was the, the Star Trek. So you could actually, if you could file off all the serial numbers, you could actually probably publish that too. But that might be a lot of work because so much of Star Trek is iconic. Yeah, you know, it would be difficult. And, yeah, and Kirk, I mean, the whole original Enterprise crew is in this story. I don't know if I can file it off enough. Um, you know, maybe one of these days I might approach the people that, that do Star Trek and say, hey, look, I've got this thing completed. You know, would you be interested in, in giving it a go and seeing what happens? Yeah, who knows? Okay, that's a, that's a good answer. All right. So what is it, you know, we've talked about, you know, your the sci-fi and fantasy that you, you grew up with, but what is it about that umbrella genre that is speculative fiction that you love so much? Because there are no limits, you know, as, as a, as a human being, your imagination with speculative fiction, whether you're reading it or writing it, there is literally nothing that is impossible. Um, and so as a writer, I love that because I can, you know, I can just just decide where I'm going to have the, the main character is going to go do this and this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and we're going to go here and this is how it's all going to come together. And as long as you can make it make sense, the reader will will come along for the ride. So there's there's no limitations. You know, when you're when you're a newspaper writer and you're going out, you you are severely limited if you're any good at your job to reporting what happened, where it happened, how it happened, why it happened, who it happened to. And so you are locked into the facts only. With my nonfiction books, I have to gather what actually happened and put it in written form for, for other people to come and read. But with speculative fiction, none of those chains exist. And there there is no end to what I could I could come up with or where I, what I, where I want to go or what I want to do with the story or the characters. Yeah. The, um, the journalism does sort of limit you, but I will say having met other people that started their writing career, doing that the old fashioned way back before, you know, both sides turned it into activism and we're apolitical here. So we will leave it at that. But at one point in time, journalists were at least in theory, uh, impartial and they had to use economy of words because the internet didn't exist so you were limited by words like word space mm -hmm. uh, and so they had to learn to be very succinct 
And that's a skill I do not have. Sometimes I'm very wordy. My editors hate me for that. So mm-hmm. like it's 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 an impressive way to, to hone the craft, I think. Well, you know, my problem is the reverse. Because I had 20 years of I've got to squish all this into something that'll fit here. I tend to do that with my books. I mean, it, people are talking to you, you, you need to write 100,000 words. And I'm like, I get to 60 and I'm done. You know, I, I can't just toss in 40,000 more words because it's just after 20 plus years of being taught, you know, condense, 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 it's hard to expand. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm slowly getting better at it. But I, yeah, I, I, I think it does help, though, because you you're able to get your point across quicker and clearer if you can be concise. Yeah, my problem was I came at it from the academic side because I did, you know, they say you, your first half a million words or whatever. I don't know if that's true or not. I published the first short story I wrote, but I also had hundreds of thousands of words on the academic side writing history papers. But that writing style, if I tried to tell a novel in that way, like people would be boring and chuck the book. So so you definitely have to learn to adjust your style to the medium, which you don't really appreciate. Uh, and I, I've just seen how um, terse you have to be when you're writing newspaper articles or at least the ones that come on print paper so i I imagine that's a skill set that has benefits but also challenges it does it does so the good news is it's easier to add than it is sometimes to take away (laughs) when you're you're editing yeah So, so you do have that benefit so we've talked about your writing specifically the professional stuff with the newspaper but how did your love of the um, speculative fiction genre transition into you writing actual stories and spec fic and that could be your first professional stuff or anything you were writing before that but how did that evolution of man i really like this thing to i want to make this thing you know for me it was i had i, I was a library rat in school. And part of that was the the traveling all the time. My my dad's drilling business. We were all over the Western United States. If, if I finished the school year at the same school I started the school year, it was a minor miracle. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I would, I would hang out in the library because I'm like, I'm not going to get to know these people that in two months I'm not going to be around. So I just read my way through school And I got to a point where I had read everything I could read in in sci-fi. And so I I got to thinking, well, if I were to sit down and write a story like this, how would I do it? And I I just kind of, you know, as we were driving from from town to town, I'd be in the back seat with my um, notebook and a a pencil or a pen, and I would just write these little stories. Excuse me. So, you know, it just kind of, I think it just kind of organically grew from that is um, I, I always wanted to write them and then be able to share them with with other people who enjoyed reading. Okay, so when you moved around a lot, so did you find that various libraries, because you were before <clears throat> computers were ubiquitous, so mm-hmm. was there a vast difference when you went from library to library? I think more standardized now than used to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm I date back to the time when you, if you wanted to go find a book, you actually had to go to the big cabinet that had the little drawers, and you pull them out and you'd rifle through them until you found what you were looking for. And the Dewey the Decimal System. The Dewey Decimal System. So, um, the there was a the public libraries were pretty much the same. 
Um, some had more than than others would. Uh, my my hometown library in Turlock, where I was born and grew up, most of the time, they had uh, they had this whole collection of, of records, and mostly it was music. But one day I found the recording of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, which I had never heard, but I'd heard about. And at the tender age of 10, they let me take this album into the listening room and I had listened to the whole thing. And I can see why people got freaked out because I knew it was a radio show all along and it was freaking me out. I kept looking out the window to make sure, you know, there's, there's not stuff going on out there. Right. Um, so the, the public libraries were, were pretty much the same. You know, like I said, one would have a, a, a audio visual, some of the smaller ones, they just had books. The school libraries were a little different from state to state. Um, California, you could find a lot that maybe kids my age shouldn't be reading. You get up <laughs> to North Dakota, uh, you know, they had, they had a little bit, but it was mostly a, a lot of it was Viking stuff for some reason. Um, and then but you get down to Texas and, you know, you, you almost had to swear out an affidavit that, you know, the, the book you were checking out was suitable for someone your age. So it was the school libraries were always a little different, but the public libraries, I think, were pretty much the same. OK, I, I, I by the time that I was going to the public libraries, everything was you know starting to go on computers. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that I wasn't reading before then, because I certainly remember the Dewey Decimal System. But, you know, when you're at that age, like that doesn't really matter. You just go to the kids section with all the cardboard books and, you know, you go for it. Right. Yeah. By the time I was actively reading real books, I think they had already started inputting things into the computer. So I didn't have to do some of that, yeah. even though we had to learn how. So, well, my parents, oddly enough, started me reading when I was three. So okay. when I hit, when I hit first grade, I was already at a third grade reading level. So, you know, I, I get there the first day and we get the book and it's like, see, see Dick run, see Jane run. And I'm like, boring. <laughs> you know? I, I, I'm like, I, I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to get, you know, there's, I think there's a book by H.G. Wells I haven't read. I'm going to go get that, you know. So I was always reading ahead. And it sometimes it caused some issues because they're like, there's no way you can understand what's going on in this book. And I would have to read a chapter and then talk about it to prove to them, yeah, I'm grasping the concept here, guys. So, you know, but yeah, I've always yeah. been, I've always been into reading. Um, I probably always will. Um, if you come into my office, you will see many, many, many books. And I've read every one of them at least three times. So, yeah, uh, I, I'm with you. I have some of the books in my library are over a hundred years old because I inherited them. And I still, those oh, ones I'm are so sometimes like, <laughs> uh, my grandparents left me, left me some, some of the original like classics, like some of the Shakespeare that was published hundred years ago. I mean, it's, yeah. Shakespeare hasn't changed in that hundred years. Just <laughs> we don't open the books anymore. It just stays in the shelf and I read it online <laughs> if I want to read it. Yeah, I, I need to sell a few more books because in a in a used bookstore, which I'm not going to tell anybody where it's at, is a complete set of um, Edgar Allan Poe stories. It's like a oh. 12 volume set that was released in 1912. So if I ever get enough free free change roaming around, I'm going and buying that set. So just putting it out there. Nice. So we actually have 
the uh, Fort Monroe, which is in the Hampton Roads area, actually has an exhibit based on him because he was briefly stationed there before mm -hmm. he sold his commission to go to West Point and then got kicked out of West Point. <laughs> and so they have a little bit of exhibit about his time in the Army there. So, and he was so young at the time. So hearing about a Sergeant Major that's like, wait a minute, can you shave? It was, it was an experience reading through that. But a lot of things can happen when you buy your rank. So, yep. all right. So many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that shape you as a storyteller? You know, I, I was kind of pondering that earlier. Um, I don't know that there's anything significant that, that I worked in, but there's little things that I do that habits that I have uh, that I've worked into some of my characters. Uh, the, the one that sticks out is not my sci-fi book. It's, it's my, my political thriller series. And the main character just does not eat breakfast in the morning. He's not a food person in the morning. And that's me. You know, you, my, my wife, it took my wife three years to get the memo not to make a big breakfast in the morning. Cause it's not that I don't like your cooking. It's just, I don't eat right off the bat. Uh, so I, I work some of those things in. I, I tend to, if I see somebody, who has this little odd thing that they do or a, 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 a phrase that they use, I'll kind of file it away. And then I kind of give it to a character where it's appropriate, where it'll work in. So nothing, nothing is standing out as far as anything significant, but just a little things like that. Okay. I, I could dig it. So let's transition from the uh, fandom nerdy side to the writing side. So, um, have you gotten any cool fan art or had anybody cosplay anything you've written yet? Not yet. And, and you know, if anybody does, um, I have a newsletter, which I think we'll have a link to. Um, but you can go to my website and you can click the link on the sidebar there. Uh, or you can contact me and send it to me. I'd love to see what some people would come up with for Escaping Infinity, which was the one that I was the, the 2017 Dragon Award finalist for because there's some stuff that goes on in there. Um, you know, that I would love to see what a fan would do uh, just, just because it's, it's so wild. I, I think somebody with a really creative mind and, and who can do better than I can. I mean, I can't draw a stick figure if you gave me a hundred bucks. So I, mm. I would love to see what somebody would come up with. So not yet, but I'm hoping somebody one of these days will. Okay, so you heard it first, and we will directly link to the newsletter and to his website and all of his social media, so you can hunt him down and, and go from there. Um, it is one of the many joys in life to help help you stalk your favorite authors. So, <laughs> has yeah, anyone, stalk away, stalk away, please. As long as you're clicking the buy button when you do it, he really likes yes. it when you buy the stuff. Yes. Um, it does help feed the family. So yes, uh, and rumor has it your family actually likes to eat. Funny how that works. Yeah, you know, it's it, you got to feed the dogs, you got to feed the kids. You know, what do you in do? what order? Because sometimes I think the kids <laughs> might rank higher than the dog. Well, the, you wait, know, did the, I say that out loud? <laughs> the, the, the dogs quite often, more more often than not, they manage to have their their share, and then finagle a portion of your share too. Uh, I don't know how that works, but they get, they get away with it every time. Okay. So since you started writing, um, has anyone asked for your autograph? I, you know, I had it happen. It was, it was back in the eighties. Um, we were promoting sea dragon, which was the comic book series that had just come out. 
Uh, we had a, a, an appearance at a comic book shop in Bakersfield, California, and we had sold out everything because they didn't send me enough copies. So, I mean, like within five minutes, I'm, I'm, I got nothing. So this kid comes into the shop and he had wanted to, to get a autographed copy and I, I just didn't have anything. So he had, he had come in with a copy of one of his comic books and I think it was a Batman comic book. And he asked if I would mind signing that. And I said, well, you know, I didn't write this one, but you know, I, I'll, I'll do it for you. So I, I wrote it and he ran out of the store. You'd have thought I, I had given him three bars of gold. And just to see the, the look on his face, just getting my autograph. I mean, that was, that's something I will probably never forget. That is always a fun experience. And did you spell your name right the first time you did it? I hope so. <laughs> you know, it, it was it was weird. Um, even as a kid, I, I was able to nail that name. I, I never really botched it. Um, but growing up, I, I started noticing I could tell when somebody was going to call for me because they would come out like at a doctor's appointment. They would come out and they would look at the chart or the paper and you could see the look on the faces like, what? And it, I just immediately would know. I would just stand up and say, okay, that's me. And everybody else in the office is like, oh, yeah, right. I said, first name Richard, right? She goes, yeah. I just look at him like, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it even better. So yes. uh, I actually don't – we don't write that much in cursive anymore. Everything's typed. So the first time someone asked for, for my autograph, I – was so happy to write it that I spelled my name wrong <laughs> because I didn't remember the cursive more than anything. Cause like, obviously when I'm signing a, you know, something at the bank or whatever, I just scribble. I don't even try to make it legible, yeah, but when too. you're doing an autograph, like you, you try to make it so they can know it's actually you that signed it. And I'm like, yeah. shit, I had to buy a new book. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have cussed, but I had to buy a new book so I could sign it right to send them back one that didn't have my mess up. Well, you know what, what hurt me was, um, Oh man, I, I forget what year it was, but I actually tore a tendon in my wrist and they didn't have to go in and do any work on it, but it took about a year to heal. And so I wasn't signing anything for a year. I was barely, you know, I could type with it if I did the hunt and pack. Um, so when I, when I finally came back to start using my hand to handwrite, my handwriting is gone. I, I you go to a doctor's office and have him write something and me write something back then, you could you could have a better shot at reading what the doctor wrote over what reading Ooh. what I wrote. You know, um, it was bad. So, yeah, and, and computers are not helping. I think writing in cursive is becoming a lost art. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's the, the running joke is when you get to the uh, old folks' home, you could get away with plotting a rebellion against the staff because you just write in cursive and nobody would be able to read it. <laughs> yeah. So, so have you ever spotted anybody out in public reading one of your books? No, not yet. And I always wanted to when we were living in the Bay Area because we were constantly on BART going from the East Bay into San Francisco. And I was just hoping and praying one of these days, you know, I would be on the BART and I'd look over and somebody would have my book in their hands and I would I would just mess with them a little bit. Um, and just have, hey, that looks like an interesting book and just kind of talk to him a while. Because the the early days, I think my picture was actually on the back cover. And just wait to see how long it would take them to realize, hey, wait a minute. 
<laughs> yeah, that's the guy. So, but no, not yet. Um, we'll see. Maybe one of these days. I, I I need to go hang out in bookstores, I guess. Yeah, uh, that's even harder for indie authors because we're not in bookstores. We're on the the digital bookstores for most of us. I mean, yeah, you can yeah. do POD, but most people are reading digital anyway. So, I feel your pain. <laughs> so, since you started writing, what would be the funniest or weirdest interaction you've had with a reader? It's it's one where I did not have a direct interaction with the reader. Oddly enough, we had moved from California out to Nebraska. My wife was starting a new job. So she's at her her place of employment. The person she replaced had been there for 20 years. So they're redoing everything with her computer. And so she's on the phone with the IT guy and he, he goes, OK, what's your first name? Rattles it off. What's your last name? And she says it and then she spells it. And all of a sudden he pauses and he goes, like the author? And she goes, well, my husband writes books. And he goes, oh, wow, I love that guy. And so he was all gushing about it and everything. And so they they finish and she comes home and she tells me the story. And I'm like, no, I mean, this is early. I, I've only got two books out, two, maybe three. There's no way, you know. So I mean, he must be talking about Christopher Polini with Aragon. So I'm like, ask him when you talk to him tomorrow, if he's thinking about Chris's books. And and as odd as it is, Chris and I are, are very distant cousins. Um, anybody with the last name that starts with P-A-O-L-I, we're related somehow. So I, I'm figuring it's going to be Chris. She's going to come back. So yeah, he's talking about Aragon. And I'm like, oh, well. So she comes back from work the next day and she goes, no, he listed off all three of your books. And I'm like, okay, I, I wish I could have been in on the conversation. <laughs> First time a fan is gushing about my book and I don't get to hear it. And he gushes here. So have you actually met Christopher Pellolini? Oh, I butchered it again. No, Chris and I haven't. I have, we, we've exchanged messages on uh, social media once or twice. Uh, one of these days we're going to have to meet, um, you know, just to see exactly what the exact relationship is. But um, I, I think it's kind of, you know, funny that that uh, distant cousins and we, we basically write sci-fi fantasy. Guess it's in the genes somewhere. Must be. Or the water. Did you guys grow up in the same area? <laughs> no, he, I think he was back east somewhere and I'm out west. So who knows? Then I got nothing. Must be the genes. So this is where we talk about everything you've written, Richard. So can you give us the Reader's Digest version of your body of work? Well, I, I started out uh, wanting to be traditionally published. So my first three books were the Del Rio series, which is a political thriller series. Um, the main character is Jack Del Rio. For the football fans out there, yes, I named it after him. And there's actually a little joke in the book, in the first book, Reservations, uh, where we jokingly referenced the, the connection. When I wrote Reservations, Jack had retired. I thought he was done with football. And right after Reservations came out, he comes back as a head coach. So anyway, I always liked the name. I thought it fit my main character. So I actually um, have have exchanged messages with him to let him know. And I, he's cool with it. But uh, that was my, you know, I thought I was on the traditional track. Uh, kind of didn't like what I saw once I got behind the curtain of traditional publishing and 
in 20, late 2016, I, I dismissed my agent. I dismissed my publisher and I, I kind of launched out on my own as an indie and released uh, Escaping Infinity, which went on to be a, a Dragon Award finalist. I, I thank everybody who nominated. I don't know what you guys were smoking, but thank you. Um, and since then, I've written uh, When the Gods Fell. I'm going to have to turn around and look real quick. That's pretty bad when you've got so many you can't remember them. Um, I've just started the StarQuest Fourth Age series with Galen's Way and Galen's Blade. Like I said, I've got 20 short stories that have made it into anthologies. So, uh, you know, it's it's... It's. I look back at the last six or seven years, and and I still can't figure out how I've gotten that much written in that time period. That is impressive. Uh, before we dive any deeper into the book that brought him here, we're going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. Van, I know this is hard for you to accept or even believe. But you're not imagining this. You're not going crazy. Your grandfather believed right down to the core of his being in protecting those who couldn't protect themselves. You expect me to believe that my grandfather was a star-faring soldier? I can prove it to you. And how are you going to do that? By taking you for a flight. Whenever you're ready, Van. Incidentally, that uh, commercial, we were sponsored by Backyard Starship by Terry Maggard and Jay and Chaney, or Jay and Chaney and Terry Maggard, however you want to order it. They don't care either. Uh, he's a finalist for the 2022 Dragon Con Award for military best military sci-fi. So this episode will air in time. If you hear this and that sounds interesting, read it and then vote for it or any of the other finalists. It's not too late. I just added that will... book to my to read list. So there you go. Yeah, that uh, commercial, like I... Books aside, like I'm ready for them to make that into a movie, and I haven't read the book yet mm -hmm. <laughs> because Cheney did good. I don't know who he hired, but they did good. So uh, we talked about the books that you've written, um, and while all of it sounded fascinating, today we wanted to interview you about Galen's Way. So where did you – is that how you say the title? That is correct, yes. So where did you get the premise for that universe? How did you come up with the idea? Uh, well, I wish I could take full credit for it. Um, it's basically a – story concept that I had that I originally titled 
the princess and the pirate and I, I had wanted to do a space opera so I had this 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 idea percolating in the brain and then I had John C. Wright on my podcast back in 2018 and John mentioned that he had created the StarQuest universe and he was going to write uh, it was supposed to be four it's going to be six books in it and he had this this huge bible he had written there were 12 ages of StarQuest he was going to be in, in 12th and he was going to open it up to any author who wanted to jump in, go through everything he, he'd written down so you, you didn't violate what he had said and uh, you just start writing. Um, and as we were talking, that story idea just kind of snapped into place. So I put it together. I shipped it over to John and his wife, Jaji. Uh, they looked it over. I think there was one thing I had to change because it was in direct violation of what was going to be coming later. And, you know, Galen's Way in the fourth age of StarQuest was born. And I'm having a blast writing in it because, you know, it, it, again, it's it's the, the reason for being in speculative fiction is there's no limits here other than I just have to make sure I don't do something that, that John has said can't happen in his uh, but but we're with fourth age, it's just the human race, and there's not a whole lot of trouble I can get into. So I'm I'm in pretty good shape there. But it's just being able to write and space opera and have it be a part of what's going to be a multiple author uh, universe like this is just something I can't pass up doing. Um, where where I can't even though this isn't going to come out for a while, I can't name names, but we are talking with another author and trying to get that author to join in. And I think if that author does, then you're really going to see StarQuest take off with this author, with John, and then me just trying to, to have some fun in the fourth age while, while they're, you know, setting the universe on fire, basically. So it's, it's you know, it, it's the actual Galen Dwin and his history is my idea, but um, I it probably wouldn't be as good without John setting the table with StarQuest like he did. Okay, that's uh, it's good to know. Which means that if this sounds interesting, there are other books in this universe that people could potentially check out as well, which is always good because most readers can read way faster than any author can write. Yeah, and so. John John's almost last I heard John is almost ready to pull the trigger on his six books. Uh, like I said, they were originally wow. supposed to be four. And then I last I, he said he, he saw something he didn't like. And so he went back to rewrite and now it's six books. And I'm like, okay. So yeah, you're going to, with, with John doing his, um, I, the ones that I have, I think I've got two or three more in fourth age. I'm actually, I've been given the green light to go back in what we call pre-migration StarQuest, be, which is before the human race goes from the Milky Way to Andromeda. And I get to kind of have some fun setting up how that comes about. So, you know, I've got, I've got several more books coming. John's got, you know, his first six, I would assume it will have more. We have other authors who've expressed interest as they come in. There's There's, I'm hoping there's going to be quite a lot uh, to offer to readers. Okay, that does sound intriguing, so I will have to check it out. So um, before we dig in more to that universe, uh, we're going to take a moment. I'm going to show you the book cover 
And uh, can you tell us the story behind this art? It does look so, almost like a um, um, the moon base uh, of certain uh, IP property that shall not be named right as it's about <laughs> to explode. But I'm sure that's not what we're supposed to be seeing. So no, can you, can you no, us... no, 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 I, I, you know what, this is the first anybody said that. So I'm like, oh, God, I hope not. Um, no, this is actually the, the image you see has a lot to do with the final showdown between Galen, Dwin, and one of the people who you will, will think is the primary um protagonist in the series um so the if you as you get to the end of uh, the the book and that that final sequence is playing out now you know what that looks like because that that image is uh, is a, uh, a a sphere that galen is inside so in all fairness i am also colorblind which i've made so many it comes up often enough that readers joke that if they drank every time I say it, they'd lose their liver. But uh, so that that is to say that what I see might not be what everyone sees. So and, and you know, in all in all fairness, maybe I'm the oddity seeing the uh, certain base exploding. Now there's always room for that fact. There, it, this is a buildup of energy at the center of the sphere, um, and I you know I can't go any further without doing spoilers. So no, th this as you read the book. Just keep that image in mind when you're getting at the end, that that final sequence as it plays out, and that's what you should see. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the book itself. So, speaking specifically of Galen's Way, which is book one in this in this series, um, what would the thirty second elevator pitch be? Okay, um, what I've been using is this: is uh, Galen Dwin was the Andromeda's galaxy's most feared mercenary. He's been hired to rescue a kidnapped princess from a fortress planet. For her love, he will stand alone against a ah, what, what, against a growing evil empire. That, that was the word. Talk about going brain dead there for a second. Yeah, basically that's the 32nd. Okay, I will take it. Uh, so would you say this is more space opera or would this be more uh, actual romance or is the romance incidental? The, uh, the romance is incidental, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's mostly space opera. Uh, Galen is going to, he starts out as a mercenary. He's, he's kind of a, I think somebody said he was a cross between Han Solo and, oh, I can't think of the character's name, the main character in Firefly of all things. The, okay. the captain and Mal. Okay. Mal, yeah, Captain Mal, yeah, yes. So it's kind of a cross between those two. Um, they, they're they're not people you trifle with, but they also are not people who are just out, you know, blowing up stuff or, or stealing stuff or anything. There, there's a strong core, a strong code of, of honor inside of Galen Dwen. And as the series goes on, we're we're going to discover where that came from. And why it's so important, um, but yeah, it's it, he's kind of he kind of becomes a paladin in a way. Uh, there are no space wizards yet. I haven't decided if I'm going to work one in yet or not. But for the most part, it's just a lot of space battles. Um, you know, the one man going up against uh, people who want to uh, overthrow the alliance and install an empire. 
uh, who kind of steps up and finds his destiny in a way that he never saw coming. Okay. Uh, I can appreciate that. So which tropes do you feel like Gallon's Way hits the best? Hmm. Well, for, for I, I think with Galen, definitely the 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 lone soldier of fortune maybe uh, might be the best best way for him. He's he he was in the alliance's military, um, left it, and and the running joke is that the uh, when he when he you know checked out of the military, they sent ships after him until they got tired of losing ships and men, and they stopped. You know that that's where he becomes this most feared mercenary. It's uh, the military can't even handle him. You know nobody else wants to. But you also find out that he, you know, he he's not lawless. It's just he's kind of a, his own person. Um, so it, it's kind of the I guess uh, the old Western series have gun will travel is, is what I think of when I think of Galen. He's just the have gun will travel in space. Okay, I can appreciate that. Um, so, what genre or subgenres? You've mentioned space opera with some some shades of um, romance. You've mentioned that a little bit of a western vibe. But other than yeah. that, are there yeah. any other genres or subgenres where this fits into? Do you think uh, a little bit of military sci-fi? I think um, not not too heavy into the military. There's a lot of political intrigue, which for some reason or another, I I tend to work into all of my stories. Um, you know, I had a reviewer say that that it, it, I do that well. So why mess with something that works? So I there, there's a lot of political maneuvering. Um, you know, there's a lot of backstabbing. You've got people who you think are your allies. All of a sudden, they, they jump ship on you. You're dealing with a lot of betrayals. You've got people who you wouldn't think you could count on who step up and do amazing things. So yeah, there's there's a lot of little things that are going on in the, in the books that I think just add a, it's like adding a little spice to the stew here and there, a little different spice. Okay, so do you think the the inclusion of the political element is um, a residual from your time being a reporter? Um, I don't know what beat you covered as a reporter, but do you think that's some of it? No, actually, I was a sports writer. You know, oh, I don't, okay. I don't, I don't, I do not know where this political stuff comes from, but, you know, I'm somehow able to, to tap into whatever that is and, and, and find a way to, you know, make people have these motives that aren't out in the open and aren't clear until you go further into the story and then you start discovering it. So, uh, you know, that, that could be though, some of it comes from, I, I grew up in addition to sci-fi. I also read a lot of Sherlock Holmes, and I've actually okay. written I've actually written five Sherlock Holmes short stories that have been published. So I'm thinking that that whole you know Holmes having to go in and and take these minuscule clues and piece them together in a way to solve the mystery. I think that kind of imprinted on me, and I'm I'm use it in my writing where I give you a, I'll give you some stuff here. I'll give you some stuff there, but I also sprinkle in a red herring every once in a while so that you don't figure it out too quick. And that's, that's the trick for any book you write 
if there's any type of mystery to it, any anything that you want to you don't want to reveal too quickly is to do it without giving it away too quick or without losing the reader. And that's it's it's a tightrope and it's not easy to walk. Fair. All right. So before we get into talking about your main character and back on the book, you mentioned that you wrote Sherlock Holmes. So you wrote mystery. So I have to ask when you read a mystery, do you cheat and read the end first or do you discover it as you go? No, I, I, I don't do the, my wife does that. She'll read the last page. I'm like, really? <laughs> Come on. Um, no, I, I like to just kind of go because I, when I'm reading now as a, as a writer, when I read, I am trying to figure out what the writer's up to, where they're going. And if I, it's a mystery, I'm trying to figure out who it is. And the ones that I enjoy reading the most are the ones where I don't know who it is when I turn the page for the reveal. And those, there aren't that many of them out there. There's a few of them like, okay, I know who it is there was one that was written and by the end of the first chapter, I already knew who it was. And, you know, I, I finished it. And of course to get to the reveal and yeah, that was it. Okay. So yeah, I, I really, I want to be, I want to lose myself in the mystery and not solve it too quick. And those are the best books I've written or the one or read are the ones where you just don't know until that last page turn. And they're like, yep. Okay, that 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 one makes sense, and I love being surprised. I like I love thinking it was this person. And it wasn't. It's like good as long as as long as there wasn't something back there that that precludes it being that other person. So it's mysteries are hard to deal with. You've got to you've got to make sure you you get them right. Yeah, I, I always cheat and read the last page, but there's a reason I stopped reading them. <laughs> and I'm sure like like telling a mystery writer that you read the last page first is like telling an audiobook narrator that you listen to their audiobook at like 1.5 speed. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> likes to hear that. Sorry, shame. Veronica, I apologize. Um, <laughs> oh, shame, shame, shame on you, sir. So, so now let's talk about the story itself. So what can you tell us about Galen, your main character? Is he the only main character or are there more than one? Oh, there's more than one. Uh, the main characters are going to be Galen, who is a, like I said, he's a mercenary. He was found at the age of four, uh, wandering the streets. And he had he had already organized all the the street rats, if you will, into a uh, an organization that was able to steal enough food to feed all these orphan kids that nobody else was taking care of. So when he comes to the attention of the authorities, they they haul him off to to throw him into military, and he encounters his mentor, uh, who who sees something more than just a street rat in him, and kind of nurtures and and develops this this inner core that he sees in this child. And as he goes into the military, he runs into a situation where his. Um, I guess you would the, the equivalent to our world would be the drill sergeant really physically abuses Galen and Galen says, I've had enough of this. And he leaves and, and his mentor is telling people, you know, you, you can't be doing this. This guy's not going to put up with it. And, and sure enough, he takes off and he, go, he, he actually steals a ship from the military, which he's still flying around when we, when we uh, meet him in Galen's way. Um, like I said, becomes a mercenary. He's he's hauling cargo. He's he's doing what he needs to do to survive. 
And he, when we meet him, he's sitting in a bar and he's approached by a representative of one of the planets who uh, the, the princess has been kidnapped. She's being held on a planet that is unapproachable. They, if they sent the military, their ships will not get through the defenses and the princess will be killed. So they're hoping that Galen, who's got this history of pulling off stuff like this, can go in and, and rescue her. So he takes the job because the guy who is holding the princess is somebody he has a score to settle with. And it's like, okay, they're going to pay me to take out this guy. You know, win-win for me. So off he goes. And when he gets through the defenses and gets to the planet, that's when he finds out he is in a, just a, uh, in the middle of a conspiracy and he has become now the number one wanted man in the galaxy because everybody thinks he's the one who's been kidnapping the princesses now. So he's got to, he's got to deal with that. So that's, that's kind of the setup for it. Um, the other, the other main character, one of the princes, the one he's hired to rescue is Rhiannon. And she is a, she becomes a very primary character and I, I really enjoy the, the character arc she is on. And there's one more character. It's the AI for Galen's ship. And that's Cassandra. And um, I, I can't say much until you've read Galen's Blade about her. But I think people are going to like her character growth and the arc. I've got her on as well. Okay. Um so how do you go with giving a character, this is always a, a tricky thing, with the character as powerful as he is from stopping him from being so OP that he's a Mary Sue or Marty Stewart or whatever you want to Well, that, that was that was the whole point of putting him through. He's got the military training. Um, he's got several years of being a mercenary and, and doing some of the things that he's done. Um, and he has developed this attitude of, you know, you don't mess with me or there's a price. And so I think I, I've set up his backstory and told his backstory enough to where you, you kind of say, okay, he's, he, he would be capable of doing some of the things that he's doing. And then we're, I'm dropping little nuggets that will explain some of the stuff that he's going to be doing and why he would be able to do as we go. So, I, I, yeah, I get the, the the Mary Sue thing where you just don't want to snap your fingers and all of a sudden he's this powerful part, uh, force. Um, there, there are some things that, um, especially as with the next book after Galen's Blade, where, which will explain what's going on with him. Uh, so it's it's not going to be, oh, he just inherited these powers. This is This is something that has been building up and his training has added too. Okay, fair enough. Um, and I wasn't accusing him. Obviously, I haven't read this yet. I was just asking how you prevent that in a universe like that. Because if I'm curious, other people will be. I oh, yeah, and, and I don't. I don't like the. You know, I don't like the the character that's just walking along eating an apple, and then the next next page they can they can alter the entire universe by snapping their fingers. That makes no sense. So yeah, it's it's something that I'm very conscious of, and making sure that everything that happens is is explained within the Star Quest universe. And I have the I have the benefit of knowing 
what's in John's original Bible. So I'm drawing on it a little bit. And I'm hoping that as people read his books and then they come to mind, they'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, all right. That that fits into the StarQuest story. Okay. So were there any secondary characters that were especially memorable when you wrote this story? Um, well, I, you know, I don't know if I make them secondary. There's Rhiannon's parents, uh, the king and queen, and then the representative from her planet is uh, Harmul. And... Um, He's he's interesting. We'll, we'll put it that way. Um, so so he's he's gonna he's gonna have an interesting arc as well. And I'm I'm being very careful because I don't want to give spoilers out here. But there's 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 him. There's another character who's kind of a a minor character that's going to have a little bit more of a role later on. He he kind of runs a bar. Uh, if you want to go the Star Wars route, think of Lando Calrissian. Um, he, his uh, his name is Jacques, and his um, he he has uh, nobody knows for sure how many wives he's had, <laughs> but his bar is named the Bitter Hag, and nobody is sure if it's named after the fifth or the sixth wife. Didn't he know in baseball three strikes you're out? No, he didn't learn that lesson. So does your character have any bad guys that they have to confront without giving any spoilers? And if so, what can you tell us about them? Well, Har Harmul is Harmul is one. Um, there are there's there's the character that is um, behind the the fortress planet um, who is who is a smuggler, but he's the the opposite end of the spectrum. He's just He's just a bad guy. There's there's no redeeming qualities about this guy whatsoever. Um, when, when Galen confronts him, I think everybody will be more than pleased with how that plays out. Um, but no, I mean, I, I'm trying to, I don't want to go too crazy with, with characters so that people are losing track of who's who and what's what. So there, there's, I would say there's probably about, seven or eight people that you really need to pay attention to. That does make it easier. So mm -hmm. speaking of characters, so as authors, we do horrible things to the people we write about. So if they ever met you in a back alley, how would they treat you after the hell you put them through? Well, um, my, my Del Rio character would probably shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> and I would probably go, you know, I probably record right before I die. Yeah. I had it coming. Um, you know, I don't know. Galen, I'm not sure what his reaction would be with me. Um, because I, I think what's coming for him, I, I think is something that he will, he'll, he'll embrace and uh, he will be, I think it'll be good with, with what I do with him. Uh, there are, there are some characters, especially the, the, the protagonist or the evil um, or antagonists, I'm sorry, the, and the evil characters, uh, those people, I tend to not give them easy deaths when I dispatch them. So um, some of them would probably be a little bit irritated with me. That happens, that happens. So that would be the, the downfall of most authors, I think, actually meeting their characters, some more <laughs> yeah. so than others. Yeah. I mean, George R. R. Martin, he's dead in five seconds. Yeah, I think I would be taking cover from Del Rio. He's he's probably not too happy with me right now. 
So, all right. So let's take a peek behind the curtain. So were there any cool scenes or ideas that you caught from this book that might be entertaining for our listeners and viewers? Well, you know, there, there's, there's the scene where Galen as a child is first taken notice of by the, the, the military is called the Badavan. And they, they decided they're going to bring this kid in and straighten him out. So there's, there's a chase scene where they're trying to catch this kid who knows every nook and cranny, every, every grate that's just big enough for him to slide into that the bigger adults can't. And so they're chasing him all through this town, trying to bring in this little kid. And you got all these big, burly, you know, arm to the teeth soldiers that cannot haul him in. Um, I had thought about putting it in Galen's way and didn't, but it might sneak its way into a later book. Uh, just, just as kind of a, to add to the backstory. Okay. That definitely sounds interesting. Um, a lot of times some of the prequels can be hard because you know, obviously certain characters aren't going to die. Um, mm -hmm. So I think for, for a good prequel, you either have to have that one character and then everyone else is up in the air. Because you know you only know about one if you use everyone else as a new cast of character, or it's one of those stories where it's not so much the outcome but the the journey and the adventure that yep. makes it entertaining. It sounds like this would be one of those cases where it's the adventure and the journey that makes the story, as opposed to the outcome itself. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. All right, so what can you tell us about the larger universe that this story fits in, the StarQuest universe? You know, it's the John just sent me the updated Bible. And the last time I looked, it was like almost 200 pages. So if he's updated wow. this thing, oh my God. <laughs> um, I, I may be I may be taking a week off just to read it. The the great thing yeah. about the great thing about StarQuest is it's set way off into the future. The premise is that there was a dark force coming into the Milky Way that would destroy all life. A advanced race of beings swoop in, take all of humanity out of, Mil of the Milky Way and move us to Andromeda, far away from the reach of this dark force. So by the time we pick up StarQuest First Age, so much time has passed that the human race has forgotten they came from Milky Way. It's almost you know, mythology that there's this other galaxy that we came from and nobody believes it except for some crazy scholars who have these, you know, text and, and found stuff in a cave and, you know, things like that. So it's almost like we've got the human race as a reset and then you just kind of go through these 12 ages. By the end of the 12th age, and I, I'm trying not to give away too much, we have finally discovered all the other races that were already in Andromeda when we've popped in um, and, and dealing with that the human race has highs and lows, you know, they, they become the dominant species. They're, they're the, you know, the, at the other end of the spectrum, they're, they're the, the trash, you know, that people just walk on as they, they go by. So it, it's just, it's amazing how he laid out each age and what each species is doing. And for me and forth, the human race hasn't discovered that we're, we're not the only ones. We still think we're the only ones in, 
in the universe, which is good for me because then I, I don't do anything stupid and create a species that doesn't exist um, for John to have to deal with later. So it, it's just the, the, the time frame it covers is millions of years. So we have, we have this endless amount of storytelling that can be told in each age. And it will, each author who comes into this is going to be able to put their own little stamp on it as long as they stay within the bounds of what John's got laid out, which is not that hard to do. Because like I said, I've written two books and we've only had to change one paragraph. Okay. So how much of the the lore that you've got to stick with right now as we're recording this in you know August 2022 how much of that is just in the bible of for the universe and how much of that is in other books that are published already well right now i've got the only two that are published um when john had to go rewrite that that put him behind track and so my books were already ready to go so he got not go let her rip so Right now, I'm I'm really staying within his guidelines. I'm creating some smaller planets that have no you know impact on on the later storytelling, just to have different planets for the the characters to be going to and from. Um, you know, so it's it's a lot of it is stay within the Bible. You can add some stuff as long as it as it stays within you know, the time, the frame that he's built. And if I do something that definitely was not in there in his Bible, I always contact him and his wife and go, okay, here's what I'm, here's what I'm thinking. Is this going to, is this going to cause any conflicts? And so far, like I said, the, the one paragraph was the only one. And I think it was a, I think it was just a minor uh, part of a conversation and it just, it just was going to clash and it was just like get rid of the paragraph, and we're, you know, it didn't do anything to the story, as far as hurting it. So it was it was an easy fix. So um, you know, I'm you're able to to add a little bit, but you also have to be conscious not to just start overdoing it. Okay, so we know this is part of the series. We've talked about that already. There are currently two books out, um, but what where do you expect this series to go? How long do you think your your series will play at, um, end up being? Well, for, for fourth age, for what I'm going to write. And, and the other thing is if an author wants to come in and play in fourth age, they're free to do so. They'll have to, you know, they'll have to stay within what's been set down, but who knows, somebody might come in and they might take one of the other planets or they may take one of the other characters and run with it. And that would be fantastic. But for myself, I can see, two or three more fourth age books. I can see about three of the pre-migration books because I've already set the stage in the prologue of Galen's way for the pre-migration stories I'm going to write. So for me, maybe five or six more books that I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to write. And then who knows, something might click and I might go, hey, okay, this will make a, a good book. Let's Let's add that in. Okay. So how much, uh, obviously you can't give spoilers and you don't want to think, but how much do you, how many books are already planned? So there's your two, that might be two more. 
and they're sixth in your the universe creators world. But is there more already planned, or is it just sort of you're gonna see what comes about? Well, right now I've got let's see, I've got two out. I've got five or six planned. Then there's John six that should be out hopefully soon. Um, I don't know what he's got planned if he's gonna drop into the other ages. I just know he he wanted to get the the first six in for twelfth age. I know of two other authors who are working on on projects. One is in seventh, and he and I actually got together, and I, I planted a little nugget in my story for him to pick up on in seventh age and run with. So I'm waiting to see what he comes up with that. Um, so we so there's two more possible. And like I said, we're talking to an author. Uh, I can't give out names, but if if that author comes in and John gets going beyond what he's done, you know, sky's the limit on how many books could come out in the series. Okay. So are all of them going to be narrated? Obviously, I'm sharing because it's the biggest image I could find and it was the clearest. But this is currently out in audiobooks narrated by Dan Ryan. But is yeah. the rest of the universe going to be going to be audiobooks as well? Well, I, if I could find somebody to narrate Galen's Blade, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dan, Dan was not able to do the second book. Um, you know, issues beyond his control. So I need to try to find another narrator who will sound similar to what Dan did because I loved what he did with Galen's Way. Um, unfortunately, this last year has been, I don't know if insane covers it. Uh, you know, my, my father passed away. My business partner passed away two months ago. So, I'm sorry. You know, all, all, th thank you. And all of a sudden, you know, now what was two people working is now one person doing. We've got, you know, we've got books that we have scheduled to come out. Uh, Declan Finn's St. Tommy's series, we're, we're doing the last two books of his. We've got another series that we're about to sign on. So right now, trying to find the time to do an audition and try to find uh, narrators is kind of down on the list, but it's definitely something I want to get to. I don't know. I would love to have John narrate his books, but that's something he's going to have to decide if he wants to do. Okay, well, there's actually, and I can't want to name him, but um, there's a couple narrators that I know of that listen to this podcast. So if you're listening and you want to audition, his contacts in there. You know, this might be your chance to uh, to expand your horizons, so to speak. Yep. Um, so we've got a few of the people that are nerds first and just starting out in the audio narration space that that might be interested. So, all right. So we know every literary universe has its own in in blah, speak much internally consistent rules for science, technology, and or magic. So what sort of tech can we expect from these books? Well, you have uh, you have blasters, you have uh, spaceships of all sorts and sizes. Um, you have something called the Armageddon Sphere, and you'll have to read the books to find out what that is. And don't think just because how Galen's way ends. You've heard the last of those little beauties. They're coming. They have. They'll, they'll be back. Um, you have a blade, which is the Badavan blade, which actually, if you if you watch Babylon Five, um, Marcus's 
that, that little pole that he uses. It, it, it fits in the palm of his hand until he activates it. Something similar to that, but the blade where you can kind of hold it in the palm of your hand till you need it. And then it opens up into this razor sharp monster blade that will cut you if you even so much as look at it. So you've got that. I know in 12th age, we start getting a little bit more into the magic of the universe, um, but that's spoilers that I really can't share. Um, and you'll get a little, you'll have a little bit of some, some tech that could seem to be magic in, in my books, uh, but I'm going to leave that up to the reader to decide, is it tech or is it magic? So do you at least have somebody telling the person with the blade that he'll poke his eye out at least once? <laughs> no, unfortunately, we, 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 we are introduced to the blade when Galen is uh, being ambushed in an alley by four people who should know better, um, but decided that he looked like an easy mark to, to steal the money that he just got paid. And he, he does everything he can to warn them to just turn around and go home. And they decide not to listen. And they find out that a, a Badovan blade is not something to, to trifle with, especially when it's being wielded by someone who is as uh, talented with it as Galen is. Okay. Well, there's a certain Christmas movie that ruined um, the Red Rider BB gun for all of us. So yes. now, you know, when I... <laughs> I would, uh, I would and if not you know recommend. what it is, you can comment in the section. Yeah, I, I would not recommend <laughs> giving a Badovan blade to your child. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> so of all the tech that you invented in, in your fourth age for this universe, mm. what would you want for your daily use? A Badovan blade. <laughs> I really... I mean, now, how would you abuse that? Oh, oh, good God. There are some people who I, I would, would dearly love to introduce that to. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> sort of. Actually, you know what? There is. There's a, there's a piece of tech that it's, it's a moment in between the chaos when Galen and Rhiannon are, are hiding out from searchers who are, they've got everybody searching for them. And Galen is just trying to figure out how to get out of the mess that, that they're in. And he takes her to his hideout. Um, and, and she comes across what would be very odd for a smuggler to have. It's a, it's a kind of a, a, a sphere that you put the, the material into the inside, close the cover, and you just lay your hands on the sphere and concentrate on what you want to create. And then after a few moments, you open up and out will come whatever you did. And he actually sculpts what is what, what she finds are these amazing sculptures. And she's stunned that here's this guy who goes around shooting people and, and blowing up things and, you know, is, is gruff and, and everything you would not think uh, an artist to be. And yet he's able to create something like that. So I would love to have that because my artistic skills um, would have to improve to suck. I'm not that good at it. And I would love to have something where I could just think of what I want and it would be created. Okay. So we know that the universe has aliens in it, but your series is Does in not. an age where they don't know that. Yeah. So they, I'm going to ask this more broadly of you as... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, in fourth age, it's just the human race. 
um, but we we are introduced to the the alien species that that moves humanity to the Andromeda galaxy in the prologue. We're just they they're not very well described. It's it's just kind of referred to. John's twelfth age, you will have you know, all sorts of aliens and creatures and. Um, and I see I'm getting into spoilers, so let's say that one. There's a lot going on in 12th Age. Uh, if, if you really, if you want to see aliens and bizarre creatures and species that just don't match what we would think a species should look like. Okay, so I'm not going to ask about for this universe because you know we, we sort of addressed that, but for any other works that you've created or you might create, when you do create your aliens and or fantastical creatures, how do you go about doing that? Do you let your nightmares inspire you? Let Mother Nature? Do you create something out of whole cloth? Like, what's your strategy for creating these beings when you do write them? Well, the very first sci-fi novel that I wrote and, and published was Maelstrom. And part of the story is that Europa is terraformed into a small planet. But there's no, there's no human life living on it. But the, the creatures that were sea creatures at the time when this, this terraforming happened, and it was quick, many of them died off, but some of them were able to, to adapt. And there's actually a species of what are called, what, what are described as mini polar bears. So I, I'm a, I, I love polar bears. Uh, if you were to look at my office, there are polar bear pictures everywhere. Um, so I wanted to create a species that looked like little tiny polar bears waddling around, but they also have um, the telepathy and telekinetic powers. And the main character will encounter these guys, and his first thought is, a polar bear is talking to me, and he can't. And the and the creature is like, what's a polar bear? You know. So I I use that. There is one creature in Escaping Infinity that is created from a nightmare, and that's the giant blue bear um, with the the fangs and the claws and blood blood red eyes that actually came from a nightmare that was part of the inspiration for escaping infinity so when you when you're reading about the big bear that's this this big giant blue teddy bear I had a nightmare about okay that is a good <laughs> answer so Clearly, this interview is winding down, but before we wrap this up, was there anything about Galen's way that we didn't ask you that you wanted to tell us? Yeah, no, I think we we pretty much covered everything. I mean, it's it's I hope the readers who read it and who who continue on with Fourth Age and hopefully continue on to all the other Starquest books that are coming out. I hope you guys enjoy reading these stories as much as I'm enjoying writing them because it's 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 really it's it's almost like somebody handed me Star Wars and said, "Have fun." So this is kind of you know this is kind of what I'm doing. I'm I'm writing a space opera with with all sorts of, of intrigue and battles and escapes and and you know and romance. There's there's romance going on and surprises. You know it's just it's been a, a blast to write, and I just hope everybody enjoys reading it. Okay, so what would you say the age range for these books are? Because we do have some families that listen to this podcast mm -hmm. and they try to read books together where possible. So what would be the you know lowest age, I guess you would say, this book is appropriate for? 
Well, I don't, I do not write sex scenes, no matter what I'm writing. So I always do fade to black. I mean, you, you have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. And when you turn the page to the next chapter, you have a pretty good idea of what happened in between. So I don't get graphic. Uh, I don't get graphic with the violence. I try not to, but there are just, you know, there's sometimes you have to get descriptive. So I would, I would say a teenager and up um, easily. You know, I, I, I hate to use me as the yardstick because I was, like I said, I was reading H.G. Wells when I was eight and, and going on. I mean, I, I went to the library and got a book called Cyborg, which is written by Martin Balsam back in the 70s. And it has some graphic sex scenes in it. And I just whistled right through it because, you know, I didn't didn't worry about it. So I, I don't know if I would go that low, but yeah, maybe teen, preteen uh, and up should be fine. Okay. That's one of those scenes with you as a kid where you just didn't know what you didn't know. <laughs> right, right. I mean, now now looking back on it, that first chapter, I'm like, oh, that's what they were doing. Okay. <laughs> but you know, back then, eight-year-old me is like, okay, whatever, you know. I'm, I want to find out because Cyborg was the the basis for the the series Six Million Dollar Man, and so I wanted to read the book. That oh, yeah, that's the book it was based okay. on. So I, I I saw the TV series. I want to go. I want to go read the book. So there you go. So yeah, I have I, seen the TV series. I didn't realize there was books. Yeah, it, well, it was uh, Martin had written the book, and I think they adapted it to a TV series. Um, okay, and, but they clean they clean the TV series up from the book from my memory of it because I there's a chapter in there that I know didn't make the pilot, <laughs> not not for not for network television fair. in the seventies, yeah, yeah. So yeah. before we let you go, dear listener, I would like to remind you that your reviews matter. So please be kind and speak your mind on the review and platforms. They help the right readers find the right book. So do your part, uh, and the authors appreciate it too. So it is It is part of the way we get other readers to find awesome books. And who doesn't want their friends to read books as awesome as the one you just found? So so do your part, people. Um, but uh, as we wrap this up, Richard, can you tell listeners how to find you? And as usual, all these links will be in the show notes. Yes, you can find me at my website, which is uh, scibiscribe.com. Uh, you can find me at tuscanybaybooks.com, which is the publishing house that I, I now head. Uh, and you can also find some other reader, uh, readers, writers of, of some books. We've got some great stuff coming out. You can find me on Twitter um, and you can find me on Facebook. In fact, I've, we're, we're actually setting up some pages and some groups for, for me and for Tuscany Bay. So we've, we're out there on social media. We're going to be adding some stuff as we go. I have a newsletter, which is on my website. You, there, there's a, a link on the sidebar. You click on that, it'll it'll sign you up. And if I remember right, we still have a free ebook attached to that. Uh, if you sign up, you should be able to get the free ebook. And if you sign up and you don't get the ebook link, send me an email and I'll take care of it. Okay. And you can find us, dear listener, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com 
blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com i promise we do check it uh we have a facebook group where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast again backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast we have a website over at anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month you can help keep the lights on or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley again buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast and i promise i will keep my co-hosts doc seska and nick garber uh swimming in coffee until their liver explodes and their bladder hates them uh, and they would tell you that they're not quitters. So let's see what the what the breaking point is, people. Uh, coffee or bust. But, um, oh, you know, this wouldn't be the Blasters and Blades if I didn't ask you this one parting question, Richard. This is the most important one we've asked you all night. Pineapple on pizza, yay or nay? Yay. Okay, Doc put you up to this. You're fired, never coming back. That is the wrong answer. This is the reason we put it last, because I don't want to hate the guest in the middle of an interview, but that's clearly the wrong answer. You know, the, I, when, I, when, I, when I first was introduced to pineapple on a pizza, the Italian in me went, oh, no. And I finally tried it, and, you know, I, I, like, I like the pineapple on the pizza. I, sorry. So the American in you said, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There we go. All right. Well, dear listener, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, yeah, it's or maybe there's some Hawaiian in my ancestry I just don't know about. But, you know, real quick, um, I think there'll still be time to vote for the Dragon Awards when this comes out. So if you haven't yet, please go and vote for your favorite in the categories. Um, you know, I know every every author on that list, every creator is going to appreciate every single vote they get. Absolutely. And this will air in time for them to vote. Uh, the voting will not have closed yet. So do your part, people. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. And that's the